0: So again, we are still asking the question, why are we here? And we have come, as I've told you, to the place of fellowship. Now, I realize as Baptists, we have a lot of unlearning to do. Because when we hear the word fellowship, we tend to think of what? Food. We tend to think of cookies and Kool-Aid, dinner on the ground, uh, having meals together and all that can be part of fellowship, but it's only one very tiny part of fellowship if we don't understand all. So we're going to take a look today and try as we jump into this idea of understanding what it means for us to say we are in fellowship. Now, on July 24th, 2002, in what the news called the miracle at Q Creek, nine miners were trapped for seventy-seven hours, two hundred and forty feet underneath the ground in a water-filled cavern. They only had about twenty-four, or excuse me, four feet uh, high in the chamber they were in. They were in water that the temperature was fifty-five degrees Fahrenheit, which meant they were in danger of hypothermia. And essentially, one. Uh, news report pointed out when one of the miners would get cold, the other eight would gather around him and warm him up with their body temperature. And then when another one would do, that act of kindness was returned. Um, Harry B. Mayhew was one of the miners and he told the press everybody had strong moments but at any certain time Maybe one guy got down, and then the rest pulled together. And then that guy would get back up, and maybe someone else would feel a little weaker. But it was a team effort. That's the only way it could have been. Uh, One of the trauma surgeons that treated the men after they were rescued said to reporters that they told them uh, early on in the disaster this group of nine men decided they would either live together or they would die together. Now, the amazing part was the rescue because people worked round the clock to get these men out. And folks, how would you like to be rescued by an eight-and-a-half-foot-cylindered cage that was only 22 inches wide? They lowered it down. And raised it up nine times. Uh, they started with uh, the, the crew leader because he was having chest pains. And then they went from there, from the heaviest to the lightest. And all nine men were rescued. Uh, they were treated and uh, amazingly did not have the serious effects you could have expected. Uh, Just a few months later, President Bush visited the nine in an event celebrating their rescue and their commitment to one another. They faced incredibly hostile conditions together. And they all came out alive together. Now, the world in which you and I live is filled with conditions that could be called hostile, isn't it? The struggle to make it through sometimes seems insurmountable. Uh, For the last two years, we've been dealing with barely getting able to get over one thing before another thing hits. And that condition is made so much worse when we have a sense that we're doing it alone. You see, even as people of faith, The struggles of life can be so difficult as to cause us to wonder, are we going to make it through or not? And then, if we listen carefully, the still, small voice of God lets us know there's hope. If and when we learn, we remember, We are not alone. As believers, we have the strength of God at our disposal, of course. But one of the things God has done for us, He has provided for us people, like those nine men at Kew Creek, God has given us people who can walk alongside of us, who can help carry us when we're about to give in. When life is overwhelming, brothers and sisters, can bear our burdens. And that is the meaning of fellowship. Not cookies and Kool-Aid, not ice cream socials, not dinner on the ground. Fellowship actually translates the word koinonia, which means that which is shared in common. Koinonia is the association of believers and the experience of their common salvation or in various consequences, expressions, benefits of salvation. It is communion of a common faith, common experiences, expressions shared by the family of believers, as well as the intimate relationship that they have with their God. Fellowship is what binds us together. That the term koinonia is not used in our text today which is Ephesians two nineteen through 22. But this text gives a beautiful answer and vision of the depth of fellowship. What it can be. What it should be in the Lord. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear the word of God together. And I want you to listen to it very carefully. You two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. In our text, you may be seated. May God bless this reading of his word. In our text, Paul wanted his readers to really understand that they were part of the household of God. He's writing to Christians in and around Ephesus, in Asia Minor. People that he had spent a great deal of time with, he actually ministered in Ephesus for two years. And he wanted them to understand that one time they had no relation, but now they do. You and I, we need to seek to fully remember who we are as members of the body of Christ the household of God. Because if we remember this, it will help us come to understand we're in this together. We're in this together. So I want us to listen because there are some fantastic truths that are given us in our text. Absolutely fantastic. That we need to grab hold of, embrace, and live. Let's see what Paul revealed to the Ephesians and to us about the fellowship of God's household. And the very first is wonderful. We are no longer outsiders. We're no longer outsiders. We're no longer on the outside looking in at something wonderful and beautiful. We are part of something. And Paul wanted them to understand this completely. And so Paul pointed to a monumental change in status for his readers. In the first chapter, into the second chapter, Paul is reminding them, at one time, you not only didn't have a relationship with God, you could not possibly have a relationship to God. He let them know you were not part of the kingdom of God and you had no hope for God in this world. Now, in our text, he brings this to mind when he says to his readers, there was a time you were foreigners and strangers. Now, these are two technical terms. Commonly denoting a group of people's inferiority to the citizens of a nation. Foreigners was a short-term transient. They're not living in their hosting country. They're making their way through it. They're just passing through from one point to another. Strangers carries a bit more meaning. Some translations use the word sojourn. Because these are people who've actually come to a place to live. And they, by paying a a small tax, were offered some degree of protection and status, legal status. And there was no illusion that they were equal to the citizens of the kingdom. They weren't. This was not an all men are created equal mentality. We'll let you stay and we'll watch over you, but you've got to do tax to do it. And so Paul said, you were at one time excluded from citizenship in Israel and you were foreigners to the covenant of promise without God in this world. In the second chapter, verse 12. But now, they've come to faith in Christ. Now they are children of the living God. And with this, they have now been given all of the privileges, all of the rights, all of the significance of what it means to say, you are God's people. They were now, Paul says, fellow citizens of with God's people. They are now members of God's household. Now, this particular word for household is used only three places in the New Testament. Here and in First uh, Timothy 5 and then in Galatians uh, chapter 6. But the root idea behind this term household means these are people who are related either by kinship or circumstance. And they have formed a tightly knit group. So, they might be blood relatives and literally family. But in the case here, and in the case here for many of us, we're not blood related. But we are related as as we heard earlier with our little kids when Natalie said we are related, related by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are a household. So these Gentiles now have become part of the company of God's committed. What they could never have achieved on their own, they now have because of the grace of God. And let's face it, folks, to belong is a virtually universal desire in the human heart. It's virtually universal. We want to belong to something. A uh, husband and wife team, Les and Leslie Parrott, wrote a book, Relationships. And in that book, they pointed out a, a pioneering band of researchers studied the age-old question of what makes people happy. And their answer is not what you might expect. What appears consistently at the top of the charts in this research was not success, Wealth, achievement, good looks, or any of the so-called enviable assets that society would call. The clear winner of what makes people happy is relationships, close relationships. And they went on to write, nothing reaches so deeply into human personality, tugs so tightly as a relationship. Why? For one reason, it is the only in the context of connection with others that our deepest needs can be met. Whether we like it or not, each of us has an unshakable dependence on others. They point out what John Dunn meant when he said, no man is an island. We're part of the whole. We need camaraderie. We need affection. We need love, they said. These are not options in life or sentimental trimmings. They are a part of our species survival kit. We need to belong. Now, there are a few people out there who are content to be some degree loners. But even loners have somebody in their lives. And most of us We're not going to be loners. We hunt for people with which we can make a connection. We find ways of identifying with other people. Maybe by the way we look, the way we talk, the way we wear our hair. We want to find people we can connect with. Because each of us hates the idea of dying alone. The greatest company to which we can belong unites peoples of all kinds, nationalities, ethnicities, social statuses, ages. That community is the body of Christ. In my life, I've had the privilege of sharing the Lord's Supper with a variety of different people. Now, admittedly, most have been Baptists. I have been a past Baptist pastor for over forty years. But, even with that set in mind, I had it with people who were different. God showed you a sense of humor, took me as city boy, and planted me very frequently in rural churches. My sister-in-law once said, I didn't live out in the country because I could see my next door neighbor. And my reply was, if I have skunks in my front yard and cows in my back, I'm in the country. And I got to learn more about my grandparents and their lives in my time out there in the woods. I have had the Lord's Supper with people whose worship is far more formal than ours, a much stronger liturgical base where everything is very clearly done at a particular time. I've had the Lord's Supper with people in Ukraine, brothers and sisters, who, by the way, used real alcohol for the service, real wine, and it was really strong wine. I've had the Lord's Supper with an unregistered house church in China. And the thing about it, one thing has been consistent through it all. We might have spoken different languages. We were from different cultures, different ethnicities, we from were from different social statuses and backgrounds. But every time I've taken the Lord's Supper with a group of people, we were all brothers and sisters, united by the love of the Savior and, and His church. In all my different worship experiences in different denominations, as I would visit and, and take advantage of it. Every place that I've ever worshipped, even if I was very unfamiliar with what was going to happen, I was home. I was home because we had brothers and sisters together. And I believe this means we can experience what it means to be part of God's household we really can Antoine Fisher is a young man uh, who wrote the story of his life in a book Finding Fish excellent read and in a movie that screenplay he wrote he was a young man his father was killed two months before he was born and Antoine was born in a prison his mother was in jail and turned him over to the foster care system and never tried to regain him. Never tried to find out what happened to him. Never looked for him. So he was raised in abusive orphanages and foster homes where the people were, and I know this is not everybody, but the foster homes he, were in, he was in were people who wanted the government check. He spent time in reform schools. But as he entered into adult life, he, entered, he joined up with the Navy to see the world. And he was a very young, angry young man whose anger kept coming to the top. And he finally came to an understanding as people tried to point him. He needed to find his roots. He needed a connection. And so finally, he was able to get hold of his birth certificate and he found out the name of his father. When he started looking him up, he found out his father was killed. And so he went through the phone book. He knew his family was from Cleveland. So he got a Cleveland phone book and just started going through all of the Elkins in the book. His dad was Edward Elkins. And it seemed like an impossible task. But he finally makes connection with his aunt, Annette. And she tells him about the family in Cleveland, lets him know he has cousins in San Diego, not far from where he lived in the naval base. And Antoine Fisher start making connection. He did eventually find his mom. And he had all these anger issues that he wanted to just unlash on her. When he saw her, it all melted away. She couldn't look him in the eye. She couldn't talk to him. So he finally gave her a hug, wanted to let her know she was forgiven. And they never were able to establish a relationship. But he found what he needed in his father's family. Aunts and uncles and cousins. Nieces and nephews from half siblings. And up in Cleveland, they gave him a blast out Thanksgiving dinner. Everybody gathered, about 50 folks gathering together. To honor him. And Antoine Fisher. For the first time in his life. From a family. People who had never met him before. Never heard his voice. Never saw his face. But they welcomed him. Into the family. And he finally. belonged. He finally belonged. Folks, in Jesus Christ, because He gave Himself for us, we have been brought together. And I love my family dearly and I'm thankful that I can say that the vast majority of my family people are also family in the body of Christ. But the fellowship of the saints is far deeper than anything the world can offer. We are welcome. We are not outsiders. We belong. And we belong for one very real truth. Our next truth emphasizes how we can be, I can say we belong. When I first came to Bay Vista Baptist Church, I found a new family for me. And Paul lets us know the reason we can belong is our relationship has a firm foundation our relationship with God, and our relationship with one another, a foundation that will stand against anything the world offers and throws at us as long as we remember who we are. And Paul wanted his readers to understand it, this firm foundation. And so Paul pointed to the bedrock base of the household of faith. Now, I've already shared with you, he's writing to a church and to churches in and around Ephesus Uh, Asia Minor, they are all local folks in their area. But Paul's letting them know what has drawn you together now is not your culture, it's not your proximity to home, it's not your ethnicity. You have been brought together now by the foundation of Jesus Christ, your Lord. Now don't be troubled that Paul says in this text, that these people were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Uh, The language in the original text is a little ambiguous, and people have been arguing about what it means forever and long after I'll be gone. But I don't think it's a contradiction. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul says, the only foundation upon which we can build is Jesus Christ. Paul is saying something important. William Klein helps us to get this when he says the apostles and prophets were the custodians of the special revelation of God that originated God's household. No doubt it was in their preaching and their prophetic ministries that they extended the preaching of Christ that, now they read for you, 2nd Ephesians 2, 17, when Christ preached the gospel to those who are far away and near, these apostles and prophets are extending that preaching. Ralph Martin has pointed to the New English Bible translations of this text. The NEB is not a real well-known Bible anymore, uh, but I encourage you, if you can get a hold of a copy, it would, it's a great translation. And they translate this verse, you are built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus himself is the foundation storm. Now, there are some who said that couldn't be what Paul meant. He didn't mean that the apostles laid the foundation. But remember I told you First Corinthians 3.11 says there's only one foundation, Jesus Christ? Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.10. By the grace of God, God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. John McIntyre said, MacArthur said, as important as the apostles and the prophets were, it was not them personally. It was not a special anointing that gave them. Paul was telling them, they authoritatively spoke the word of God. They captured your heart. Long before the New Testament was completed. These men, these people shared the word. Now, to be sure that they understood, Jesus is the most important thing I can say about this foundation. He says he is the chief cornerstone. Now, cornerstone, and there is some debate, but the cornerstone itself is a foundation stone that is laid in a corner that is incredibly important because that foundation that cornerstone allows the the rest of the walls of the building to be built at the right angles the cornerstone was so important when a king would erect a new building in his day in his own honor on the cornerstone his name would be written a foundation stone the walls are made true by building according to that stone And in the ancient Middle East, they considered the cornerstone to be the most important thing of all, more than just the foundation. He is the chief cornerstone upon which this foundation is formed and upon which the building that God is making will be built. He is the foundation. So what this means for me, what this means for you, the life that we are building together is not on shaky ground. What God is doing to us is not built on shaky ground. Now, according to the National Earthquake Information Center, there's an average of 20,000 earthquakes a year. 16 of which will be major disasters. Now, earthquakes are on our mind. Back August 14th, Haiti was stricken by a 7.2 on the Richter scale earthquake that left somewhere around 2,000 people dead and 5,700 hurting. So we've been praying for Haiti. What happens when an earthquake occurs? The ground, the plates in the ground begin shifting begin moving in all sorts of different directions in rapid intervals. Buildings are generally constructed to withstand vertical pressure. You know, things like gravity, weight. Buildings that are facing earthquakes that are only built... For vertical, can't handle the shaking of the ground. They can't handle the side-to-side forces. So engineers over the last few decades have been trying very hard to design earthquake-proof buildings. And they've discovered to find a building structure that can withstand that shaking side-to-side force, We had to rethink the idea of foundation, they said. And they determined the way you build a foundation upon which a building can stand, a horrible earthquake, is to literally lift the building's foundation off the ground and to provide what is called a base isolator base isolation. So that base then is made out of flexible pads, steel, rubber, and lead. The basic concept and what happens, when the earthquake hits and the ground begins to move, the base foundation moves with it. It takes the vibrations, the seismic vibrations, and keeps them from traveling up the building which would cause the collapse. They absorb the seismic waves. And the best way I wrapped my brain around this is when they give the illustration, think shock absorbers in your car. Some of you have driven cars that didn't have shock absorbers. Some of you are old enough to remember those good old days. The shock absorber that allows you to go over that speed bump and not rattle your teeth. That's what they're providing for buildings. And so the idea, a stable foundation is still crucial to the building, but now they have understood the stability of a earthquake-proof structure is on a base's ability to move, to absorb the shock. And this is the incredibly important truth I want to leave you with. Our faith is not built on human opinion. Our faith is not built on speculation about what might be needed to live the good life. Our faith is built on the foundation, the revelation of God in Christ, which will stand. It doesn't matter how much the world shifts and shakes. It doesn't matter how much the world changes, throwing all of, it seems, creation into chaos the foundation of Jesus Christ will be firm. Now, does that mean every question we'll ever ask will be answered on earth? No. I can't explain half of what's going on in the world right now. But in Jesus Christ, we we can stake our lives on who He is and what He's done we can trust in the revelation of God in Christ. And we can be assured we are truly part of God's household. We truly are. This isn't a pipe dream. If we have by faith and receive the grace gift of salvation, we we need not fear that we're outsiders any longer. We do belong to our God, our Father through the atoning work of our elder brother brought into reality of our lives by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We, together, yes, as individuals, but we, together, are anchored on the great foundation. And that's crucial for us to understand fellowship, that we have that anchor. Why? Why? Because together we are becoming something fantastic. If we will remember who we are in Christ, if we will remember what we are to be to one another, we are becoming something fantastic, wonderful, awe-inspiring. You see, Paul, writing to these people, Paul pointed to the reality of what God was building through his readers. What is God doing in you, churches at Ephesus? He said a whole building is coming together. Now there's some older translations that opted to, to translate this, each separate building, but that's not really what Paul meant. The whole building is coming together to form a superstructure. And what's even more interesting, in the middle of his sentence, he switches metaphors. I would get in trouble with that, and I would have graded students hard on that. But Paul says the whole building is coming together, rising to become, and here's the shift in metaphor that rising to become literally means to continually grow into, and it's an image of a living organism. And the body of Christ, what God is building, is not. Brick, mortar, steel. God is making the living body of Christ grow. And he's making it grow into his temple. The word that is translated temple here specifically refers to the sanctuary. The holy place and the holy of holies. It's not talking about the outer temple grounds. It is a place where the people of Israel understood God's presence is made known to us. And Paul uses that image to say what you and I are becoming. The temple of the Lord. Where God indwells his people. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul indicates... That each individual member, each individual Christian's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's done in a context to remind them, be careful you don't let your body do sinful stuff. But in 2 Corinthians 6 and in Ephesians 2, Paul isn't talking about the individual temple. He's talking not you as in you, one, He's saying, you, all of you are becoming the temple of the Lord, Christ's indwelling place. Paul wanted to understand them. God is building a new sanctuary. God is building a new sacred place. And what this means to me, The purpose we can share together gives a meaning beyond individual human accomplishment. We have a problem in the West. We are so individualistic in our train of thought, we find it very hard to think about how we relate to each other corporately. I think of me outside of you. And Paul is saying you need to think about each other. What you're becoming together. What God is doing in the whole of you. And Francis Fowkes gives a warning. It behooves all Christians to take warning of the danger of individualistic Christian service and to consider seriously the things that hinder the hinder, the expression of common life and united fulfilling of tasks. If we get it, if we understand the fellowship of the body of Christ says, we are fellow citizens, we are the household of God, we are the temple of the Lord, then we will begin to understand what God is doing. You see, the church is not just Bay Vista Baptist or any local body. And the church is certainly not the building we're in. And I know we use the language loosely. This building is not the church. We are. Brought together to be something incredibly important. The building in which we are being formed is a community of faith that includes all people of faith Not just those who look or sound like us. And this must be central to our understanding. I'm fully aware, I'm fully aware there's some Baptists who would disagree 100% with what I'm saying. But I believe the Word of God points to the reality. The body of Christ goes beyond just the local church. It involves all Christians. That's why I can go to Ukraine. I can go to China. I could go to Zimbabwe. I could go anywhere on earth, find a group of Christians, and be at home. And that is tied explicitly to the idea God is wanting to do something in us. We are all part of the grand body of Christ and we all should be showing forth the reality of what it means to be full citizens, members in the household of faith, Now, I believe that truth will be seen most clearly by the outside world when they see a local church that really begins loving each other, that really begins serving each other, that really begins helping one another to become all that we are meant to be. What we have here, not this building, not this platform, not this pulpit what we have what we have here you my brothers and sisters in christ is sacred space and it is here within our lives together ministry happens lives will be changed eternal destinies become real so you and i We can realize the truth that the Holy Spirit is living in God's household. We are the temple of the Lord, and God is dwelling within us to make himself known. So that all the truth about who he is and what he's done will spill out of our lives into the world around us. We've been brought near to God. This temple that we refer to as Bay Vista Baptist, you and I together, we're holy, set apart by the gods of God, and we are meant to represent him. People, I hope you're grabbing hold of everything Paul is wanting us to know about this fellowship. Because everything Paul is saying is screaming out to us, we're in this together to make a difference, to see lives changed, to become stronger in our faith as we build each other up, as we encourage each other, as we love one another. God is wanting to raise up a temple that we are part of. Together, we can make a difference in this world. On September 12, 2011, Brandon Wright, a 21-year-old uh, university student at the United, uh, Utah State University, was driving on his motorcycle to the school's computer lab when a BMW came barreling out of a parking space, a lot, and collided with him head-on. Both vehicles burst into flames. The BMW driver was able to get out quickly. Wright was trapped under the car. A 4,000 pound sedan. The The incident drew an immediate crowd of people. They were students, construction workers, all running over to see what had happened. One passerby walked around the vehicles to give a a survey of the situation, and he saw a body lying motionless under the car and assumed he was dead. Another individual decided to test his strength and walked over to the car and tried to lift it. Couldn't budge it. A few others tried to do it together, but nothing worked. And then a young woman lay on the ground, looked under the car, and saw the man trapped under that burning car was alive. And the moment that came across, he is alive. And everyone understood the the dire circumstances. A group of people came together. The flames were intense at the front of the car. The motorcycle's on fire. They know they've got to do something, and they've got to do it quickly. So a dozen people in the crowd... Got together shoulder to shoulder and with one effort were able to tilt the car just enough to get Brandon Wright from under it. Emergency responders got there, put everything out, were able to get right to the local hospital, and although his, his injuries were not minor considering what they could have been. He had two uh, broken legs and a broken pelvic bone. Made full recovery. The assistant police chief, Jeff Curtis, said, every one of those people put their lives in danger. Those people are heroes. You can only speculate what the outcome would have been if they hadn't lifted that car. At that moment, a group of people put aside any possible difference or excuse for someone who had crucial need. Someone was hurting, and no one person was going to be able to help him. Together, at great personal risk, they saved a man's life. And this is where the old tire commercial comes in when the rubber meets the road. When and if, as a congregation of believers, we understand the bond that pulls us together, our relationship in Christ, when we understand that God is wanting to do something in us together we will learn what it means to walk in a fellowship. A fellowship that can can handle the crazy chaos of a world in flux. Please remember, in Christ Jesus, we're no longer outsiders. We belong to the family of God. I love that chorus we sang. We are the family of God being brought together We have a relationship formed on a sure foundation. Jesus Christ is what we have built our lives and our life upon. And we can trust that foundation. Together, we are becoming something amazing. And if you look around our building today, you're thinking, it doesn't look all that amazing to me. Do not be be deceived at appearance. What can happen here can absolutely astound us if we remember who we are. So today we're being challenged by our God to live as fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. Today we are being called by God. Today, I have no doubt about this, you and I are being called by God to commit ourselves to the master builder's plan for our lives together. And so I'm asking you, will you, as the body, will we, as God today, move in our lives, change us, that together we will actively live as a community of faith, the fellowship of the family that we were redeemed to be, God is asking us. God is telling us. We can't play church anymore. We're at a point in time when the body of Christ needs to be the body of Christ.